If you brought your Bibles with you, I ask that you turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans 8. If you have your Bibles on your devices, you can look it up there as well. I know you all looked at this a little while while I was gone. We're going to think about it a little bit differently. It also has this message at the top of my ESV in this paragraph. It's entitled Future Glory. That's kind of how we're going to be thinking about Nehemiah 4. What is in store for us? Paul sets his reader's eyes there, so let our eyes go there as well. Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. God's inerrant, infallible word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, Hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of a Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, with that in our back pocket, let's turn to Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4, as we continue our study, I know it's been a week or two since we were in Nehemiah, but we're picking up right where we left off, Nehemiah 4, verse 1. You can find that there on pages 5 and 6 of your bulletin, if you want to follow along with me. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Nehemiah prays. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. 
So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very, very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn and, and until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his hand. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together, please. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for preserving it for us and using it to preserve us. I pray that you would make us willing recipients of the message that is here, that you would remind us that you have great things in store for us. And yet, until we receive those great things, ultimately, we will indeed be under threat. We will indeed grow weary. But we know that by your spirit, you will enable us to endure. Let us believe that promise and live in light of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So is Washington Gulch and West Maroon Pass. These are just two of the trails that Lizzie and I hiked while we were on vacation the last couple of weeks up in Colorado. What we would see in hiking these trails was truly jaw-dropping, all in different ways. Washington Gulch provides mountain ranges and vistas at every step. If you saw a picture 
of Julie Andrews on that Santa Music poster where she's dancing along the Alps and lifting her apron, it's that beautiful, maybe even more so. It really is amazingly beautiful, and you can't describe it. With every step, a new perspective of more mountain ranges are revealed everywhere you look. West Maroon Pass is a wildflower hike. You look up to your left from your narrow path, and these brilliant colors are nestled among the greenery that you see. It looks like someone took a number of thin paintbrushes between their fingers and just splattered across the hillside all of these different various and brilliant colors. Same down to your right. From this narrow path, you look down. Same colors splattered all over as it empties in to this beautiful running river flowing at the bottom. And in front and behind you are these mountain ranges. It's indescribable. Now, the hike up Washington Gulch can get you breathing pretty heavy. There are parts that you ascend, and your lungs begin to burn, as do your legs. But you can't take your eyes off what you're seeing with every step. West Maroon Pass is a bit more difficult than Washington Gulch. The ascents are a bit steeper, and there are a few more, so much so that you need to stop at different points to rest and catch your breath, make sure you don't get dizzy. But while we stopped, we had this brilliant color to our right and to our left with ranges before and after us. Each hike had an endpoint, of course, but the destination, the end of the hike, was not the reason we hiked it. It wasn't ever about getting to the end. It was about actually the hike itself. Now, the endpoint was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It, there is no ugly place up there. But what we saw with every step of our hike was every bit as glorious as what we looked at when we reached the end of it. Now, here's a thought experiment. What if someone said, if you take these two hikes, Washington Gulch and West Maroon Pass, you will not believe what you see at the end of it. Your eyes may not be able to take it all in when you reach the end of the trail. I want you to take that hike, but here's the catch. I want to blindfold you while you do it. Now, don't worry. You're going to be led, but you will need to feel your way. You'll need to make sure that you're minding the trail and not falling off either side. You'll need to make sure that you're taking care of the brush that you're going to walk through and the rocks that you're going to walk over. But if you just hang in there, when you reach the end, we'll remove your blindfold and you'll be stunned by what you see. I wonder if you would take the hike then, knowing the long, steep ascents, knowing the thin air, knowing how hard it's going to be, in some parts even dangerous. Would you do the hard, taxing work that's in front of you for a promised vision at the end? Now, the one thing Nehemiah is after in this book is the restoration of the temple. We've seen it in the first three chapters. All he wants to do is provide the place for God's presence and glory to rest. You remember Nehemiah's beautiful prayer in chapter 1, verse 9. Part of it was he was reminding God, God, you promised to gather your people to a place that you've chosen, and you promised that you would dwell there among your people as they gather around you. That's a promise from God. And it's that promise that is driving Nehemiah in the entire book. He knows what awaits him if he is successful in restoring the temple, if he's successful in rebuilding the walls. He wanted desperately what God wanted. He wanted a separated people. 
a definite people gathered again that God would be present among them. And it's this stunning, awe-inspiring beauty of God's people gathering together around the presence of God. That's what drives Nehemiah. But he had an incredibly difficult journey ahead of him. He wasn't sure what awaited him, what risks and dangers and impediments he would face on his way to the goal of restoration and regathering. Chapter 4 and following gives us a picture, at least a little bit, of what he faced. Nehemiah and all of God's people were despised and threatened from all sides by multiple enemies gathering around them, taunts and threats of violence, of war and death. And yet in chapter 4, and we'll see further, Nehemiah persisted. He kept moving, trudging, hiking in order to reach the ultimate goal, the restoration of a place for God to dwell and for God's people to gather. I think a lesser man seeking a lesser goal would easily have given up and given in long before now. And that's what I want to make sure that we remember to take with us into chapter 4 and the following chapters. This fact, seeking to restore a place where God can gather with his people, his distinct people, that's what's forming and shaping all of who Nehemiah is and all of what Nehemiah does. It's that fact. So we ought not get bogged down with the wall. It's an important part of the story. We ought not get bogged down with the enemies and their threats. Again, another important part of the story. But the goal of Nehemiah, as it was for Ezra, is we got to get back to God. We got to make a place for him to dwell. We were born to gather around him. That's what's driving him. Just two parts this morning. Being despised and then being determined. We won't go in order. We're going to look at the chapter in a little bit of division part, but being despised first and then being determined second. In verses 1 through 3, Nehemiah shows us the first thing the people of God faced in their work of restoration. Mocking, ridicule, fierce anger from God's enemies. Now, those first three verses are more than just taking jabs at Nehemiah and the Jewish laborers. When Sanballat and the army of Samaria and Tobiah was joining in in the jeering and mockery, Nehemiah gives us a picture of being surrounded by God's enemies. This isn't some one-off, but there is a concerted effort here to undermine the work that Nehemiah is calling God's people to do. The Arabs or the Persians are to the south, the Ammonites are to the east, and the Ashdodites are to the west. And they were all set against Nehemiah and God's people. And don't miss the fact that Samaria has an army there, gathered, joined in the mocking and threats. And you can almost hear the laughter and see the finger pointing. You might have heard it as I read it. These weak Jews, look at them. They think they can restore all of this from these crumbles, no less? There's no way they have neither the expertise nor do they have the strength. And Tobias just jumps in there. Yeah, if they try to do that, even a little fox flittering across the top of the wall will make the whole thing crumble. So I want us to appreciate the strategy of the enemies of God here. Samballot and the rest are attacking both the ears and the eyes of those seeking to do the work that Nehemiah had called them to. The enemies want to demoralize them, to keep attacking and mocking so that they lose heart. 
But as Nehemiah tells us, they can also see the rage behind all of the mocking. They know the enemies mean business. Right there is the Sumerian army just waiting for orders. Jump down to verses 7 and 8 to see how the pressure increases from God's enemies on God's people. Their mocking and threats, at least practically, had not worked yet. The work of the repairing of the walls continues. The enemies of God from the south, from the west, and the east grew even more angry. Remember in verse 1, they were already enraged, but now they are hot. So hot that they planned and plotted an attack. Look at verse 11. This is what the enemy said. They won't know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop their work. It's a sneak attack. They won't know what hit them. We are committed to stopping them. They were determined to keep God's people from restoring the wall and temple, to keep them from completing their task. And they were willing to pursue all-out war and death to keep it from happening. So Nehemiah and God's people were facing definite and dangerous threats from the outside, surrounded by the enemies. But there was also a threat from the inside, their own ranks, their own hearts. The enemy's threats were working. The workers Nehemiah had gathered were giving up. Look at verse 10. The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we cannot be able to build the wall. This is, I think, another example of the beautiful honesty of God's word. Of course, the workers and their families are tired. Of course, they're discouraged. And of course, they're fearful. What they are being asked to do by Nehemiah and those overseeing the work is backbreaking work. The working conditions were horrible. There were no large dirt movers back in that day. The stones had to be carried and set and secured and placed for miles and miles and miles of this wall. And it was happening all during the heat of the day and after the sun went down throughout the night. This was a 24-hour project. Backbreaking work. And if it, and added to that, being surrounded by those who are determined to stop what is happening, committed to destroying the work that they've already completed. You heard the mockings and the threats. You see all of the armies. And if that couldn't get bad enough, now you hear the plot of the enemies to attack and kill all of those who are working to rebuild and restore. Nehemiah tells us in verse 12 that the family members who remained home in their houses... Picture here wives, mothers, children, all those unable to do the work of rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah says they all ran to the project and they began to beg their family members to return home. We can appreciate this. The threat, the threat and the plot to kill them is real. They don't want to lose their family members to a war over a wall. They didn't want their dads and husbands and brothers to die simply for building a wall for Jerusalem? Imagine the discouragement. It makes sense to us that the will to stay and the desire to work was dying. Discouraging. They were, de they were despised. Let's think briefly about how Nehemiah continued to be determined. How even he encouraged those around him to remain determined to the task that he had set before them. To keep moving, to keep hiking even in the face of the threat. 
after God's enemies bring all of their anger and mocking, after showing the force of armies in verses 1 through 3, notice how Nehemiah responds in verses 4 through 6. Nehemiah doesn't step up to Sanballat and the rest and say, guys, take a hike, we're going to finish the wall. Quit saying those things to us. We're about this work and you're not going to stop us. He doesn't do that. He prays. He goes to the one who is overseeing it all. And we recognize this as, as an act of faith, don't we? He doesn't get into that war of words with Sanballat and Tobias and the rest. He doesn't go over and demand that they shut up and move on. He asks God to hear. And notice what he's asking God to hear. He's asking God to listen to what these enemies are saying about them. Of course, implied, he's asking God to hear his prayer, but he's saying, God, turn an ear to the mocking and the ridicule and the threat coming from the enemies of your people. He asks God to make true what they're saying about God's people. Make that true about the enemies of God. Nehemiah prays that God would not have mercy on these who seek to undermine and destroy what they're building. Not to have mercy on those who threaten their lives. As angry as Sambalat is, Nehemiah says, God is being provoked to a greater anger. Regardless of what Sambalat could do, God can do so much worse. So part of what and how Nehemiah remains determined is believing and appealing to the one who is truly overseeing the project, the one for whom he works. Make no mistake, the threats were very real. The taunts were very loud. Being despised had to cut deep. This was no mirage. The risk and danger that Nehemiah and the rest were feeling was very, very real. But Nehemiah knew God was more real. He knew God was more powerful. He knew God could be more loud and more committed to the goal Nehemiah pursued than these enemies could be in thwarting it. And I think verse 6 is just great. Maybe my favorite part of the book of Nehemiah. In face of all of these threats, face of the gathering armies, in face of the plot and the plan to have them killed, Nehemiah says, so we built the wall. We built the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height. Progress in the face of all of it. A continuous wall, at this point no gaps. Granted, it may not be as high as it needs to be, but it's all joined together. The enemies were not having their way with God's people. And look at how Nehemiah remained determined in the face of the attack and in addressing the deep discouragement and fear his workers and their families were experiencing in verses 13 and 14. First, wisely, he armed his workers just in case the Sumerian army or anybody else made good on their threat. And look what he does strategically. He sets the relatives next to each other, their clans, they're called there, and supplied them with swords and spears and bows. Now, who are you going to be first to defend if you're under threat? It will be your family members. So they were now ready to defend themselves if needed. And then in verse 14, Nehemiah stands and speaks to everyone, including all those concerned family members who came from their homes to try to drag their workers back home to safety. And what he does is he takes their eyes off of their enemies, off the very real threat that they're facing, and he places their eyes on the one for whom they are working, the Lord. He reminds them, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord? Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome. 
not these enemies. They are, in comparison, weak and pathetic. Remember the Lord. Remember who we're doing this for. Remember who it is that we're going to gather around. Remember whose presence has been promised to us once the restoration is over. Remember him. And then he does something brilliant. Instead of running home out of fear, Nehemiah says, to those who are trying to be dragged back to their homes in the comfort and safety of their homes, he says, as you remember how great and awesome the Lord is, remain and fight with us. Not in spite of your families, but because of your families. What we're doing is for them. This covenant that God has set up for us, this presence that he's promised us, isn't just for the laborers. It's for you, mom and dad. It's for you, kiddos. It's for you who are unable to work. Let them continue to invest in this labor for you. Nehemiah stays determined and calls God's people to remain determined by remembering the sufficiency and the power and the awesomeness of their ally, God himself. Remember, he says, God is calling us to this for us. We remain and work in the face of threat because God wants to dwell with us. He's promised to dwell with us, all of us. This is the best for you, and it's the best of all things for you. We have a goal. We have a purpose. Regardless of how dark and hard and threatening it seems right now, we have an end point. We're going somewhere, and it's for you and your families and your home to restore a place where God will gather us and we will gather around him. It was this kind of faithful determination that beat back the threats of God's enemies. In verses 15 through 23, we see the genius of Nehemiah's leadership skills at work. He tells us there, after frustrating the enemy's plans, which was an answered prayer, by the way, everyone returned to their work, not to their homes, returned to their work. And he armed each one of the workers with weapons, depending on what they did, depending on what they could handle, where it was they worked. Instead of granting a sabbatical to those who are discouraged, wearied, and ready to give up earlier, verse 23 says, Nehemiah called them to a 24-hour shift schedule. They're going to work in the day, and they're going to work through the night. Why? Because of the goal. Because of what they were working for. And they did. Now, if you and I, if we just read Nehemiah 4, or if we read the book of Nehemiah, or even the book of Ezra, and we do so without Christian eyes and hearts, we would be tempted to see if we can begin to pull from God's word some useful, helpful, valuable leadership principles from what Nehemiah does here. Maybe if we're so embedded in the current events of the last three or four years, if we are more informed by 24-hour news channels than we are from God's Word, we might even be tempted to do what I saw someone a couple of years ago, one of my friends up in the panhandle, do with a passage like this. See, this chapter 4 is about the wisdom of wall building. And see, even back then, those who build walls have been despised and mocked. That's if you look at this without Christian eyes. If you do that, we miss the beauty of God's word. 
It would be silly, sad, pathetic, almost offensive to draw those kinds of lessons from a passage like this. But we who have been around here for a while know to read this with Christian eyes and hearts, don't we? The wall isn't the point. It's part of the story. Nehemiah's motivational attitude and organizational skills aren't the point. It's an important part of the story. But the point is pursuing God and seeking his presence, right? We see that. We see that from Genesis to Revelation. That's what's driving the storyline of Scripture, seeking God and his presence. This is Nehemiah's destination. Although the journey was dark and fraught with danger, despite being despised, he was determined. Does that remind you of anybody else that we might read about in Scripture? No one ever in all of human history has experienced deeper despair, felt deeper discouragement, absorbed the sharpest of taunts, or faced greater enemies. No one who has ever been under as deep a threat than Jesus Christ. His journey to the cross was the darkest of darks. His enemies did indeed have their way with him. His friends either betrayed him or deserted him. And that wasn't even the worst of it, was it? Hanging there on the cross, naked and bleeding. There he became a target of God's wrath for the sin of God's people. And he had no sword at his side. He had no night watchman, no trumpeters to protect him. He was totally and utterly alone. And he died. What Nehemiah sought through rebuilding and restoring and regathering, Jesus achieved in being undone, destroyed, and forsaken. The destination for Jesus was to sit at his father's right hand in victory and glory only after delivering to his father the people for whom he died. So now Jesus, having completed that work, sits there this morning as real as you're sitting here this morning. And there he waits. He waits for a word from his father to return. And when he comes, he brings with him a new heavens and a new earth. And do you know what's going to be at the center of that new heavens and new earth? The new Jerusalem, surrounded by walls, where we will be and the triune God will be, where we will gather, where God will will give us access to him for all eternity. No more taunts, no more tears, no more threat of destruction. All new, all perfect, all glorious. And one of the glorious truths for us this morning here in this place before we get there is that the Spirit of Christ has already begun this building project this restoration project, this regathering project. We saw it this morning, didn't we? In the beautiful testimony of Stephanie from Vietnam a year and a half ago, not belonging to God. God clutches her and brings her, and he gives her a new heart. Regathering is happening. He's preparing us for all eternity. He's preparing you. But we have to come to grips with the truth that right now, our walk is hard. It's often dark. 
Jesus told us this would be the case. He said, in this world you will have many troubles, and Jesus doesn't lie. Bone tired, emotionally exhausted, spiritually dry, discouraged and sinking hearts caused by enemies both within and without. So many ways we hear the taunts and the yells to just quit. It's not real. He's not faithful. You're not worth it. And it does spend us. We don't think we can take another step. We say with these Israelites, the strength to bear the burdens are beyond us. I've been there. I bet you've been there. Maybe some of you are there now. And part of where we get into trouble here, part of where I've gotten into trouble here, is I, I kind of expect my hike to the forever promised land to be beautiful and awe-inspiring. I, I want that blanket of beautiful wildflowers that I can just bask in. I want my eyes to be drawn to these glorious mountain ranges so that every step I take that's hard and that burns is worth it. We think we can walk, we can take the hike, we can make our way there to that new promised land as long as the walk is pretty. As long as you make things okay for me. If it isn't okay for me, if it isn't pretty, then we may be tempted to give up and give in like God's people were here. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's a besetting sin that you just can't seem to get a handle on that you continue to struggle against. Maybe it's the threat of attack. And we're under attack, at least by Satan himself and perhaps by others. Some of you, some of us might want to think that the culture is always attacking us and our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just demand the answers that we want about our faith. And if we don't get them like we want them, then maybe this stuff isn't real. And some of you continue to remain on the enemy side and say, Pshaw, you're God. <laughs> you believe in all that stuff, bless your heart. But what we have to remember, what we need to demand, is that God sets our vision to something grander than the path we're on right now. What God's word teaches us here in Nehemiah is that if we begin to give up and give in, then we, like them, have lost sight of the goal. We need to hear Nehemiah's words. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. He is with you in this. Me and you, Christians, we're on our way, moving toward an eternity. We're gathering around with the Father, Son, and Spirit is a promise guarantee, something so gloriously beautiful and awe-inspiring that words cannot describe it. You saw how hard it was for John to give words to that in Revelation. But if you're in Christ, that's your guaranteed destination. He's there. He's just waiting to come back and get you. He secured it for you. He went there to prepare a place for you. But the journey now may be hard, even dark. But if you keep in front of you the destination... If you come to places like this and gather around the Trinity, reminding that this is a small taste of what is yet to come, nothing will be able to overcome you because you will recognize a spirit-born determination that really is otherworldly. Because you have your sights set on where it is that you're going to arrive. Keep laboring, keep walking, 
Keep looking at where you're going. Believe that Jesus is before you. The Lord, the great and awesome one, has gone before you. And he faced more than you and I will ever face. And he calls us to follow him. And he promises to lead us to the destination that he occupies right now. Trust that with me. Let me pray. God, may this be true of us. May we read Nehemiah 4 in a way that's so deep that we hear your voice encouraging us to keep our eyes on our future destination, what it is that you promised for us there. Let us also uh, read Nehemiah 4 realistically, that we will face threat, that this will be a hard hike, that this is not going to be pretty most of the time, and yet by your spirit you make us endure. May we trust you for that, and by your power take the next step, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.